You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome back to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. And man, we are still celebrating the new year. We are so excited to be here. And of course, with me as she is almost every single week is, well, the wonderful and brilliant Christy Morris. Gaze upon my wonder. <laughs> whoa, I had whoa, to, whoa. sorry. Simmer, simmer down there, simmer down there. I know it's a new year. But uh, I'm still not going to gaze upon your wonder, okay? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm so we, excited. Uh, yeah, this is going to be great. Um, I This is something that i uh, kind of been planning since uh, the, this show um, was released. It was released early in the fall on Netflix, I think in, even in August, um, and kind of immediately watched it and really enjoyed it. And so did our guest. Um, and back with us, I'm so excited to have him here on the 602 Club, uh, Nick Anastasio. Welcome back, Nick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me again. I feel like um, uh, I can almost call myself uh, one of the usuals. I might, I might need to get my own, my own drink now in the 602. Oh, you should. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So if you were going to have your own drink in the 602 Club, what would it be? Oh, man. You had to put me on the spot. Um, well, you know, ultimately, I'll probably I'll have to think about a a, a Star Trek themed drink since it's my my mm-hmm. favorite uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. But I would probably I'd probably right now let's call it the Dumas. When I was um when I was on the played that Jedi on Attack of the Clones. Yes, yes. Until until these until these brilliant geniuses in marketing had to name him like with my name which was really silly john and i john Noel and i had come up with with a uh a name for um for him which was master duma which was basically a frenchified version of dumb dumb a s s so um I'll and that was named that. after you well, I, I that that was the nickname <laughs> I gave I gave him until until they actually went and had to give him a name and and because they're so original, his name is actually my name. They just like broke up the first name and the last name differently. Yeah, um, but it's it's literally my name, which I I would have pre- much preferred that he actually was called Dumas. Um, but <laughs> um, so let's call it the uh, the the Dumas special. I mean the the uh, the resident dumbass jedi i mean i guess that's <laughs> yeah 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 I'm like i think everybody, they were insulting you <laughs> yeah everybody got everybody got you know he he got to the the arena and everybody's like oh not this guy again Ugh. well D- dave dave and i would joke when we were working on the clone wars the first time that that you know dave came up like spitballed this whole backstory for him one time that you know he's this guy who basically sucked at everything at, at the jedi <laughs> academy except the late the the saber throw 
And so he was <laughs> so good at the saber toss that whenever, whenever you know, they think that Jedi might need spare sabers, they send him in, and he's the guy who just tosses sabers. You know? That's funny. Yeah, hey, man. That's, that's great. At least I'm good at that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that from from the stories that you've told me about Dave, that definitely seems like his way of making you feel loved. So, yes, <laughs> that's that is great. a perfect way to describe it. Well, we are um, we're not going to be talking about uh, Star Wars tonight, even though nope. Nick gave you a little behind the scenes there for uh, Attack of the Clones. Yep, that was for free. Um, we are actually going to be talking about the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, as I mentioned in the show that had come out on Netflix there at the uh, end of the summer. And so, very excited to do this as we we're going to also cover the film next week, Dark Crystal. So we're going to roll mm-hmm. right in. Um, I think it's going to be a great beginning to the year here on the Six Hundred Two Club. Remember, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so if you're on Apple Podcast, please give us a star rating and review. Anywhere you're getting your podcast, though, you you want to make sure that you're subscribed so you can get them as soon as they drop the episodes. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. On Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. There's the listeners only discussion group that's on Facebook called the Babel Conference. So you can join that and talk to listeners from all over the world, actually. And you can go to trek.fm slash contact. That's our website. And that's the place where you can send us an email. So trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose a 602 club, and then that comes to Chrissy and I. So maybe you have some thoughts, uh, your own thoughts about the Dark Crystal. Or you have some ideas of things you'd like us to cover, please let us know. We love getting emails from the listeners. And so, um, you know, this wasn't even on the outline, but I'm really interested because I think we all have slightly different experiences here. So I wanted to see kind of coming into the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance was this something you were excited about had you seen the original movie when did you see the original movie so christy i wanted to start with you because i don't i don't actually know the answer to this question so it's going to boggle everyone's mind i'm sure especially because i was born in the 80s but i've never seen the movie the dark crystal and i actually didn't know about it until i was watching the goldbergs tv show and adam f goldberg on the show says that that's his favorite movie besides star wars uh, and so then it raised all these questions like, what is that? And clearly I should have heard of it by now, but I, I never did. And I don't know why I just missed it. So yeah, actually watching this show on Netflix is my first experience with the dark crystal. And then I'm going to watch the movie before next week. That's really cool. That's really neat. Um, and I I'm excited for you to kind that. of have, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited though, because I think it's neat that we have. Um, a completely, you know, different experience, you know, where, and again, too, you get to come in it, into it as, you know, this truly is the prequel for, this is just the original for you. Like, it's going to set up what's come, comes next in the movie. So yeah. to me, I'm, I'm excited that we have that experience here on the show. Cause Nick, I'm thinking that this is probably slightly different than your experience with the Dark Crystal. Yes, because, uh, uh unlike Christy, I'm, I'm as old as an ancient. <laughs> um, and so I was actually, uh, you know, being born in the seventies, uh, I was, I was around 10 years old, um, uh, when I first saw it and, um, I, I did see it. Um, although I did, I don't think I saw it in theaters. Uh, I think, uh, at the time because of where we lived, I didn't really have access to movies when they came out in theaters. 
it was it was a, among the first movies that I saw on VHS, I think, at the time. Um, but you know, it's um, I have this big love story uh, with the '80s, of course, but with 1982 in particular. And uh, '82 for me is the apex of genre and nerd movies. If you look at the movies that came out that year, from ET to Conan, to Star Trek to Tron, The Dark Crystal. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Poltergeist, and um, and the Dark Crystal was, you know, came out in 1982. So it's kind of the the flagship nostalgia year for me. And when I heard that um, they were making this um, the series, I was excited. The nerd in me, the 80s nerd in me, the genre nerd in me, the dark crystal nerd and me was excited i was a little apprehensive about the fact that it was a prequel uh as opposed to just trying to do tell a story that continued after that of the movie um and so I, my expectations were uh, they, they weren't low they were just I, I didn't expect anything beyond the excitement and the hope of having a good time from a nostalgia standpoint uh, being a big a big fan of the original of that style of um, puppets in the Jim Henson studio, and so I went in just with that, uh, and and boy was I uh, surprised with how much more I got. Well, that's good to hear that someone that's seen it probably a few times thinks that highly of the show. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think, I think the show is fantastic. I, I loved it. I think it, um, it was, it's beautiful, and we're going to talk about it. Um, in many respects, it's beautiful in the way that it honors um, the original stylistically. Um, but I think that there's much more to to it than that. I think it, it tells a story. I think this film, and I, I don't mean to bring everything back to Star Wars, but it's just because of the mythology aspect. I think this movie. From the series for me, what it did is it combined the best of what I loved about the original Star Wars trilogy and the best of what I loved about the prequels trilogy. Um, it was a very mythological, very archetypal story of, of good and evil with very simple lines drawn between those two themes, very easy to grasp for children and adults. But it also had a very sophisticated way of presenting those issues and those arcs and those journeys that's very adult while still really within grasp of everyone. And that reminded me a lot, actually, of the more subtle, nuanced way that George tried to readdress those themes when he came back to Star Wars for the prequels. Yeah, it it's really fascinating because, you know, this isn't a... Uh, this is a series that I didn't watch the original movie until uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, my wife was on, uh, she was in the National Guard at the time, and, and it was her uh, National Guard training, and, and she was gone for like a month. And I happened to be perusing, I think it was Amazon, and I saw it on there. And I was like, well, this is a classic. I've never seen it, Jim Henson. I should watch this. And, you know, I was definitely impressed with just the the beauty of the puppetry and and just kind of fell in love with that you know I, I grew up with the Muppet movies um you know back in the day um the the uh the great Muppet caper and all that kind of stuff 
Treasure Island. And so, yeah, at Treasure Island, then bringing that back, you know, uh, the uh, Christmas Carol they did with the Muppets too. Like, so you know, uh, and and all of those films, um, you know. So I'm really uh, aware of you know what they can do, and so coming to the show, I was really excited to see what they do, and I. I couldn't believe, honestly, that they were going to do this in the first place. <laughs> like, the thought of of pouring the amount of time and money that it takes to do this and doing ten episodes, I was I was kind of just shocked um, that this was going to happen. And you know, Nick, I think you know what you were saying. The thing that I thought that was really interesting about this is that they were going to make it a prequel, and. So I was like, how are you going to do that? But I think one of the things that they they did, and I, I appreciate your reference because I think you're right the same way George does with his prequels, is that this, even more so because, you know, the Dark Crystal movie is not a trilogy, <laughs> you know, it's just one movie. And so what they're able to do here is add so much to what you'll then get out of what comes next. Um, but I thought it was really interesting them starting really with this mythology and, and the way that they do it is to start, I thought with a fall and a, a kind of like a rending of the natural order of thraw, which for them, it's a little, it's a kind of like the, you know, the garden of Eden, you get a temptation, you get a fall and, you know, mother Orgra is tempted by these Skeksis who come from another planet and they tempt her with traveling the stars. And I thought, what a fascinating way to kind of, one, build into that character, but to kind of immediately, again, it's the thing that George does where he takes an archetype to which you can readily understand because it's so seeped in our, our, our beings. And that allows them to really then play with all the rest of the story that they're going to give us throughout 10 episodes. So I thought that was a perfect way to start this 10 arc series. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think that whether it's in mother Ogra, which it definitely is, or in every character, as a matter of fact, uh, what I loved about it is, is it really, and that's the, I mean, I still kind of wrestle with exactly how they achieved that, but because there's a very simple nature to each character, something that you really grasp very quickly, very easily, very powerfully, very strongly. But at the same time, there's a lot of nuance. And when it comes to good and good and evil, right and wrong, they really wrote within the nature of the characters, but within the arc, I think it's, I think it's differentiating the nature and the arc. Because you get an idea of the character based on, on personality, more like the, a, a sort of a, almost like a, a personal character sheet, but then their journey is is more subtle, and you get something which which really grafts the notion that good and evil is not something that is necessarily a one time. It's not something that you're necessarily born into. It's not something that that is defined and immutable, but it's something that is the result of every choice that it is made and every step that is taken over the course of a lifetime. And, and they really show that progression in a way that, and it's a very complex idea. It's still completely graspable, I think by, by anyone and everyone. And you see it within mother Agra. She makes mistakes. She stumbles. 
she causes, she is, she is in a way part of the linchpin that starts this engine of bad, bad decisions and bad choices that are going to lead to terrible things. But she's also very pure of heart. And the Skeksis, it's the same thing. I, I really love the way that they, they show through the Skeksis and some of the Gelflings the fact that we become, we end up personifying a character, good or evil, based on one choice and then another choice and another choice. And that, that advances our position up until a point where the lines then have been drawn. And, and now you've really kind of pegged yourself on one side or the other. And it's not necessarily that you can't come back because there's some characters that kind of stay way back and forth. But there is almost a point of no return where, you know, once, once you, you have sort of spent all these choices, then at that point you're going to have to commit to a side and then you're stuck with it. And I, I thought that was really cool. I mean, maybe, I'm not sure, but I think maybe it comes from an idea in the original, um, which that, that won't spoil anything for you, Christy, because that's something that they talk about in the series as well. The fact that the, the Skeksis and the Ancients were, were one, one species, one being. Um, and and so, right. so I think that in that already, which I, I thought even back then was something very different that I, I really gravitate to it as a kid. I'd never seen a story that presented the idea that evil and good were not separate, but they were just one thing. And that ultimately it's the, the, the key to defeating evil or the key to pr progress or resolving, you know, a quest is not necessarily one side defeating the other, but it's understanding that we are one and being able to, to, to accept and embrace one another. And I think maybe from that, there's already kind of a more complex idea which they were able to extrapolate into this very nuanced layering of the characters i'm glad that you mentioned the that nuance with character especially nick because i, I felt like i saw that time and time again with celadon the princess that ends up becoming the amordra um, and I hope I'm not butchering that, but um, it, because she at first just starts with being the jealous sister and it's innocent and it, you think, you know, maybe she can get past it if she just realizes that her mom does love her too, just in her own way, but she doesn't. And then choices one at a time add up to then her killing, you know, well, I mean, she doesn't kill her mother, but, you know, she basically is okay with it which is what you feel is the furthest that someone could go to toward, I guess, the dark, I would call it, um, because that's, you know, where you came from and everything. And she's turned on that now, but it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, yeah, I, you're, you're, I totally agree. And I, I, she's a fantastic character. Um, and I was really blown away. Uh, I didn't expect, I didn't expect the journey they would write for her. I, I thought, you know, that her path, her fall was sort of archetypal, but well-written. And I was totally okay with where she was going because th there's, there's a very mythological and again, sort of almost Shakespearean nature to the way the story's told. And so I understood what she was. And then the way they were able to bring her back, turn her, turn her around, didn't feel forced. It didn't feel corny. It, it actually really elevated her character, gave her more depth. Um, not because she turned back to the light, but just because there was something very real about about it. And that's what I thought was fantastic. And this is 
again, this is the first time that I see in a long time a story that um, uses the genre of science fiction and fantasy to tell something which is very inspiring and allows you to escape and very entertaining and exciting, but also, in my opinion, really teaches something. And it's, it's very serious at times, so I don't know that I would, it's pretty dark, I don't know that I would show it to little kids. But I think, you know, for children, nine, 10 and older, it's definitely, it's one of the first pieces that I've seen in a long time that I would, if I had kids till that age, I would really want to show it to them, not just to share the excitement of a genre that I love, but to have them learn actually life lessons. And it's, it's something, there's a room for both, right? There's times when you want to show your kids very simple concepts of good and evil or you know broad notions and say hey, you know sometimes the world is black and white and sometimes you have to see it like that because some things you can't use the gray as an excuse you know something is either a lie or it's true mm-hmm. and and when you start to say well it's kind of a lie but not kind of not then you're really trying to justify yourself but sometimes in life you also have to leave room especially for children to understand that you make mistakes and if you if you want a kid to be able to to come back from a mistake and a wrong choice or wrong turn they've made, you have to give them it's not an out, but you have to 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 show them how in in you know inspirational archetype characters can make really tragic mistakes, but how in, a real person can still learn from them and can then come back and improve themselves and do the right thing in the end. And that's, she is, she's not the only one, but she's definitely one of the characters who, who exemplifies that. Yeah. I was thinking about just as you guys were talking that there's something that's really interesting about all this. And, and Nick, I really liked what you said about like this, this show, you know, with these, these, you know, everybody kind of having a, a moment of like choices they have to make, you know, and, and, Obviously, Mother Ogra kind of sets everything in motion by kind of upending everything by the choice that she makes and, and really changes the entire landscape of, of Thra in that because of, you know, abdicating her role as this, you know, overseer and, 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 and somebody who's supposed to protect Thra and, and selfishly chooses, you know, to um, give up her responsibility to somebody else who I don't know why she would trust them in the first place, but that would be another story, <laughs> I guess, for another time, why she actually trusts them in, in, in at all. Um, but we we really see that, you know, with each of these characters, like you said, there's continually choices that you make, and those choices continually kind of, in many ways, start to box out other choices. You know, it's kind of like what you choose to do in life or work, you know, and you get to a point where so far, and you've, you've kind of cut yourself off from being able to really move a completely different direction because you've been doing the same thing for, you know, 30 years, and it's too late to go and learn something else. And it's it's kind of the same way with these moral choices that these characters are making too. Like the more you go down, it's it's kind of the Star Wars thing. Like you said, the mo- more you go down the dark path, the forever will it dominate your destiny, as Yoda says. And many of these characters find that the 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 darker the darker the place that they get, they can't turn around. You know, like and what we've kind of seen here is a place already where like our our Skeksis characters have already chosen so much that they can't turn back. And we even see the emperor talk about that. You know, like his fall is that he will live forever at all cost. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only choice he will make. And he continues to choose that way. And so, like, I just really, I thought that that was such a, a great place to start. Because, again, you're you're starting off with this, like, the high mythology, this, 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 religious type aspect which we all truly understand it again it's it's just a part of western society to kind of understand these ideas of a fall and i think it plays out really interestingly then as we you know move forward throughout the rest of the series because in this in the choice that mother ogre makes there's a broken trust like it's called the crystal of truth. Mm-hmm. And like there's been a complete upending to the correct order of things. And and I love that it's actually called the crystal of truth because there is a truth to how creation has been made on Thra and is meant to function and everything plays its part. And, you know, everything in many ways, there's a symbiosis to how Thra is meant to work and everything is meant to work together in a unity that when it is all working together is beautiful. And what's happened is that, you know, we we've twisted and destroyed that. And thrall is literally from the inside out coming apart because of this darkening, um, because of what the, and it's really meta. Cause you think about it. It's what the Skeksis are doing to truth. Like that's, yeah. a, that's super deep. Um, and like you're saying, Nick, if, like, if I ever were kids, I want them to watch this. Cause that's, that's exactly what we like in real world. That's what we do with the truth, right? We mix it and mold it and we start to break it and crack it. And it, it's meant to be one thing, but we make it what we want it to be. And when we do that, we destroy it. Yeah. It, for me, that was the biggest thing that I noticed throughout this entire season was that it had all of these religious undertones to me of, um, you know, no matter what religion you are, a lot of them believe in a supreme being, you know, a guardian. And I feel like Mother Orgro is representative of that. And I love the scene where she's holding the tiny spider leaf bug, you know, that's part of the um, arachna, I believe it was called. And she says, I, I love all my creatures, even the foolish ones. And it's like, you know, that's something that we would think that like God or someone like that would say about humanity and that, you know, everyone, like you were saying, Nick makes mistakes, but that it's about how you move forward from that. You know, just because you were foolish once doesn't mean that it has to be forever. Yeah. And I, I think uh, to to run with what you were saying and, and Matt as well, you know, I think that the in in my opinion, the way that the path that, that, that the story lays out, and that's ultimately the big difference, is linking truth to honesty. Um, you know, the characters who make mistakes, some of them are terrible mistakes, they're able to redeem themselves and come back because at some point all of them face up to their mistake, um, face up to the people who were victimized by their mistake, who suffered from their mistake. And they actually vocally recognize their mistake. And so they're honest about their stumble and they understand that this is this, you know, after that, you know, asking forgiveness, it's and just recognizing that they made, that they were wrong is what allows them to then get on the right path. And if you look at the Skeksis, which is what I thought was really cool is the Skeksis, 
really embody evil from the beginning. I mean, you can tell that they're going to become the super villains of that, of that story, but in the beginning, they're not really villainous. I mean, they're, they're kind of lame and they're kind of lazy and they're kind of mean and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of things that are not great, but they're almost more laughable. And, and, you know, they're not, you can tell that there's sort of an equilibrium to this world where these are not probably the best people, but they're all right. And, but these, these false, these weaknesses of them lead them time after time to make a mistake. But the, the problem is not really the mistake is that each time, instead of facing that mistake, they then choose the coward's path, which is, well, okay, well, I guess, I guess now, the only thing we can do is actually keep going on the path. And I guess now we got to take the ball further afield, you know, because, well, we can't go back and admit that we made a mistake because that, that takes courage. And so, you know, there's a really strong sense because you see these Kexies, these, these kind of really ugly, monstrous and sort of creepy and sort of, you know, not nice characters. They have reactions early on that show that they have a conscience and, and when things start to turn almost all of them at some point there, there is a very conscious effort to show that they react in a way which shows that they, they know what's happening is bad. And they're almost like in the moment, not okay with it, but then it's done. And then not, not one of them says, well, okay, that was really not, we shouldn't have done that. I guess now we have to undo that or we have to say, you know, we have to come out and and admit what we did. They sort of confer and then they choose the quote unquote easy way out, which is, well, I guess let's escalate. Let's step it up until the point when, like Matt was saying, they've gone so far that by the end, it's almost insanity. Then they just kind of, you get to a point where you become the joker and you're like, well, I might as well just embrace that and embrace the fact I'm a monster and then just kind of go with it because now I've gone so far that there's no turning back. So all I can do is just kind of, you know, make that my brand. And, and, you know, I, I thought that was a really linking kind of making this really clear, clear linkage for, you know, anyone young or not watching it that honesty is the key really to allow you no matter where you're at in life and no matter how bad your mistakes your choices are it's about being honest with yourself about it and and then with others that's the key yeah there's that moment where the the chamberlain you know talks about um, what he does uh, and that he plants little seeds of lies and lets them bloom basically is the truth mm-hmm. and I feel like that's kind of what the Skeksis have done this whole time. Like, they know everything that they're doing with the crystal is the wrong thing to do. And like you were saying at the beginning, Nick, they just continually choose the dark path and the wrong path. They choose against truth, you know, and the the, the famous phrase from, from the Gospel of John, which is, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they have chosen to be slaves to their desire to live forever, to break with the natural order, with the created order. And that that 
position is one that we've talked about, you know, many a times on this show of, of characters who basically in the end kind of choose to see themselves as God and then play God and do whatever it is that they can do to do whatever it is they want to do. And here, specifically, the Skeksis wanting to live forever. And so they will upend all of creation on Thra to be able to do that, whether that means the destruction of Thra or not, which may, really makes me wonder, like, you realize this darkening is destroying the planet from the inside out, so you're not going to be able to live on this planet forever. <laughs> like, there's no forethought. It's it's just that immediacy of the desire. And I, I think, you know, it, it's one of those things to which it just shows how, in many ways, evil lays the trap to destroy itself in the end. Because the things that it desires are not things that allow for um, self-perpetuation in a way that will actually last. Um, and by, you know, destroying the crystal of truth, by living in a way that it denies the truth, um, they're denying their actual existence in the end. Like, it just, it's, it's really, like, the fact that you can get so meta with the ideas in this show... I think you were talking about earlier, Nick, and Christy, you were mentioning too, like, it's 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 amazing. Like, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, really makes, I think, for incredible um, storytelling that goes beyond just, oh, I'm entertained. It's not just, oh, am I entertained? It's, I'm actually thinking, I'm actually, I'm actually learning something. You know, and and being reminded of what the truth actually is. So that's that's big stuff. And really, it feels like all of these things were gathered from different places that all have this kind of mythological element to them that give them strength. So like it reminded me of Lord of the Rings. It reminded me of things from Dungeons and Dragons. We even have the podling that says he's a paladin which is a character you can play in D&D. And so, it, you know, it feels like all these things that are familiar that are combined into one and now provide the basis for this to be an incredible story and to teach you these life lessons. Like, I feel like if, where you're getting at, Matt, too, is that that quote, I love it's absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, and it's interesting that you can see that as well with the crystal, with it becoming darker, um, with it no longer able to do its job, um, that it's like it, it evil ends up destroying itself in the end. So I think that that's a really, you can take so many things from it, but it, and it even goes back to that yin and yang and that there's a, a good and a bad and, uh, you know, truth and lies and power and, strength yeah there's a there is a true i think you know it 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 reminds me obviously of the phantom menace you know where obi-wan talks about the idea of there being a symbiosis between the naboo and the gungans and that what happens Mm -hmm. to one will happen to the other and you know this this, again you know it really does come back to that idea the skeksis not really realizing that they're they're actually laying the foundation for their own doom eventually anyway because they're destroying the very thing that which has been giving them power, which has been helping them live, yep. you know, uh, what they hope to be et- eternally. And so um, by doing this, um, 
they've they've lost they've lost that rationality they've they've lost that ability to kind of um see any of the consequences for their actions for what they will truly bring and and i think there's just it's it's a good thing because this the message of this is to be reminded that all of our choices do have these consequences that place us in in a place which that we can box ourselves into where we can lead to our own destruction you know and and so um i think that there is a a real beauty in the bad and it really does nick you know i was thinking about this the other day because i was writing something on my blog and coming back to that quote from george you know about star wars and he's like you know um where he says you know i believe that there's a god i believe there's a good and an evil and that life goes best when you follow the right way you know like that's kind of that's really the message too i think of the dark crystal universe and i think it's one that we need to be reminded of you know because it's it's timeless and i think that's the kind of that's why this feels so much more rewarding to watch because you're be reminding you're being reminded of timeless truth that we all should be hoping to live by yeah and i think uh, it did um it did a great job uh, again i was i was not really apprehensive but i w- i was mildly concerned when i first read that it was going to be a prequel um because it felt a little easy you know and 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 but I, I i have to say i was really happily surprised with the fact that this i thought was actually a a motivated and really good use of the idea of what's become commonly called prequel which is to set a story before one that's already been told um and in in that sense i felt like it wasn't a gimmick which is why i i kind of almost don't like calling it a prequel um, although I guess it is the only denominative term, but it, it really, because in this case, it feels like setting it before is not the gimmick of the prequel so much as it it is the right direction to take the story to have this kind of genesis, this sort of like big, big, like you were talking about meta, this, this sort of like really big concept um, of what was already narrowed down to simpler um and smaller um ideas in the in the film and i think that that translates also visually the original film has a lot of really cool visuals and cool creatures and cool sets and and um places but i was also one thing that i thought was uh, amazingly well done in in uh, age of resistance was the inventiveness and creativity of the places we went to the creatures that we saw um it was it was really cool from a conceptual standpoint or there was really a, a, a amazing variety um and the way that they, the ideas they came up with for what the characters do really was was um entertaining and and, and exciting but i also felt like these really served well the story um and and they were cool concepts but they weren't just cool for the sake of being cool they really kind of fit in well where they were supposed to go um i'm thinking about this temple that they end up on towards the end of the series you know where they take a break where they're carried by these by these giant um 
these giant birds and and I'm thinking about the bog where where um they they fight um the <clears throat> the warrior skexes the the first time and and there's there's like really cool um or the caves you know where deep comes from and and the idea i mean that this of this this world this underworld which within the gelfling community you know within that there's are there's also kind of this layering of well they they're sort of put down by the other gelflings and that was another wonderful layering of showing you that you know there's not you before before you cast you know um a stone at your neighbor before you look at the grain of sand in your neighbor's eye, you should look at the beam in your own. Like, you know, they, they, they do a really good job at, at creating the society of these particular gelflings, which is actually beautiful and who are very close, literally physically close to mother earth. And yet within that, that strata, within the gelfling strata, they are looked upon as the lowest of the low and they're, they're, you know, ridiculed and they're looked at as second class citizens. And visually that world was beautifully conceived to get you the idea, the contrast of, you know, don't judge, don't judge a book by the cover. Don't judge before, you know, because they are put down and yet they have this amazing, beautiful way of living in harmony with nature um, that even the other gelflings don't quite have. Yeah, I really, I, I love, you know, just kind of where you're going there because I think one of the things that this, like you were saying, that the idea of like doing a prequel, you know, you can always like, ooh, what are they going to do with this? Are they going to, are they going to do it the right way? And I I would say 100% what this does, which what is what every prequel hopefully does for whatever story, is that it allows you to expand your knowledge of what it is that you already love. I obviously believe that the Star Wars prequels do that, but I think that this does that as well, where, you know, the the story that we tell in the original Dark Crystal is a very focused story, um, and it doesn't allow us the opportunity which we're getting here, which is to see all of these different facets of Thrall, like you were talking about, Nick, the, the different Gelfling cultures that we have that are... Um, you know, they they look down on one another and that kind of thing um, for certain reasons. And, you know, we're able to really build out the, the ideas of um, the different creatures that inhabit this place and really make it feel big and feel like an entire world. And I think that's, to me, like, the world building of this show is astounding, and when you think about the fact of how they're doing it with this puppetry and with as little CGI as possible, it just blows your mind because you're in awe of how every single detail has been crafted by human hands to be brought to life on screen and make you believe that you're in this place. And and I don't know if I've seen anything recently that feels like it's made with this amount of loving detail i completely agree i think especially when you see in the caves was where it got me um because i'm obsessed with in real life with bioluminescence the fact that that's a thing like ever since i was a kid lightning bugs were my thing i would collect them in a jar so i love that they include that real life thing as a part of this world that's a fantasy and that they make it like 
showing that everything is interconnected and that that's change in color shows the corruption taking hold because it's blue and it goes to dark purple. Um, but all of that world building really blew me away um, and reminded me a lot of Avatar, too, because of the the tree and everything being connected. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's another great lesson for kids is just saying how much everything depends on each other and that things go awry when it becomes a parasitic relationship instead of a symbiotic relationship. And I like that, too, because it just reminds us that, you know, we we're we're connected with what's around us you know um mm-hmm. the natural world and 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 you know you think of what we do as humans and and all of it matters and and how we take care of that which is around us um reflects on us you know and so we see that difference and i think you know that's one of the areas where i think we we kind of come down to um the selfish life and and we kind of see that you know obviously the skexies they're not even a part of thra in the first place because they're not they're not from that planet mm-hmm. they're from another planet um so they've come to use this planet and so they have no respect for the circle of life of thra you know they're not even a part of this symbiosis um of thra and everything that lives on it and so they're in direct opposition to the unity that Thra had created and had been there before they arrived and that arrival throws everything out of balance and like you were mentioning Nick it's even caused Gelfling to see each other as inferior to one another depending on whatever you know quote unquote tribe they're with you know so it's created these divisions where division was not meant to be created in that way Um, and you know not not that they that different Gelfling tribes wouldn't have, you know, a differences, but that there there's now a lack of respect for those differences, and we look down on oh because oh they live underground or oh they live above ground or you know oh they don't you know ride on ships or oh they're not desert dwellers. I mean, like whatever it is, as as long as it's different, oh well they they're doing it wrong. You know, I just um I think. It really brings to mind, you know, the the very thing we kind of see, again, Star Wars-wise with, you know, the Sith living the selfish life and, and the selfless life and the way that that has a huge impact then on the world of Thra. I thought it was, again, it really plays into all those um, other themes that we get with, you know, uh, truth and, and there being kind of this fall from, from this created order that had this unity to it and i just i love that kind of thing i think there's um a definite the themes you talked about definitely play into every every character and every group i think that um there's something for me that's even more powerful i think it it um for me rather than having one character or one group of characters be specifically the source of of what's wrong or the source of evil and spreading it around. It feels like it shows different casts of characters, different types of people. And it, it shows that to be, to err, to be arrogant, to be presumptuous, to be a coward, it is something that lies in, in all creatures. And that's the thing. It, it, it does 
take the time to show that no matter where they come from, they all make mistakes. They all are flawed. They all are incapable at some point to show love or to be generous or to be selfless, to be brave, um, to not be judgmental. But then again, it uses honesty and choice to show how where where the distancing happens is between individuals or groups that are able to realize that that's the honesty part and that are then able to understand the value of the opposite of these things and come together versus those who are not and even the skexies you know it it does i mean that's the thing is initially they don't exist they they're not they're, the Skeksis are nothing, just like the ancients are nothing, because they're, they're a half of a whole. We don't know what that species was before they got to Thra. And supposedly, we can, I guess, infer that as a whole, as one species, they were probably more balanced. Where, but where the ancients, for all their wisdom and all their magic and all the power that comes with that, seem to be able to come back and to come to terms with the notion that they are, at the end of the day, incomplete and it's wrong to have perpetuated a, a lie as, you know, as they have on Thra as two separate species and that they should come back together. That's where the difference is between them and the Skeksis who choose the easy or sort of like the, the cheap you know, lazy way of saying, well, we are like this now and why don't we make the best of it and then just try to, to, they, they just won't, won't see, they, they, they are blinded by the effort or the fear caused by the, the notion of coming back to one again. And instead they just kind of run further and further afield with the notion of whatever it'll take to just maintain what they are, how they are no matter what the consequences. And I, that's, I, I thought that was, it takes, a, it takes a lot of maturity to kind of understand, again, the, the idea that like at, at the collective or individual level, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to lie. We're all going to, you know, cheat at some point or, you know, make it, make, do the wrong thing. And to kind of examine what it takes to, to come back from that and what it takes that makes the difference between somebody who does and somebody who doesn't. Um, and, and, uh, everything in the, in the series, even the music, I've been listening to the score, um, a lot and, um, there's a lot of depth to it and it, it kind of serves, it has, you know, it's very kind of fantasy adventure tone, but there's, there's a depth to it that really kind of touches on these, this melancholy, this kind of mixing of, you know, sadness, but not just the not depressing sadness it's more about like like you were saying falling and then redeeming yourself yeah i love you know the whole idea you know uh, when we talk about the the mystics and the skexis and you know they used to be one um and you you think about that you know there's a misunderstanding these days of, of that um love means an end of hate but if i love something deeply I will hate the things that will hurt what I love. And so these, these things all go together. And, and so we've, we, 
in our world, we've lost the ability to have that nuance. And I like I was loving what you were saying, Nick, about how the mystics, they understand that they need the whole totality of who they are to truly be a whole person, right? Because they're not without that ability to have that because um, they, they they have the magic and they want to do, um, you know, they do what is right and they do what is good and all. But there's there's a part of them that's also lacking to have that righteous anger then at the things that are not being done right, that are not aligning with truth. And so, again, all of these things are actually needed, um, but they're needed in balance with one another. And that's what's been lost here in the show and with Raw. Yeah, I, I think that that was another thing I really enjoyed about this was the mention constantly of being one and being unified. And I, I loved seeing the wanderers and the heretic and all of them. Um, and the contrast again, between like good and evil with the archer and the hunter, for example, um, and the archer ultimately deciding that the only way to fix the problem was to jump off a cliff was mind blowing because you just think he's such a good character and a pure character that he couldn't do something like that, but he didn't see another way around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you hope ultimately that they're going to be able to come together as one again and not be this evil force on this planet that's imposing on everyone else. But I think that some of them now have, like you said, Matt, boxed themselves in. They've made their bed and now they've got a lie in it. There are way too many voices in this show for us to be able to talk about everyone because it, 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 there are just too many. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's one of the things that, that uh, this show does really well was the voice cast that they have. I think if, if there's one thing that this series did perfectly was to find a voice cast to which brought these puppets to life and the voice fit with the look of the puppet. Like, it felt right. Like, every time a puppet opens its mouth, it felt like not a puppet. It felt like a real character, like a real person. Because that that the the voice actors did fantastic jobs here in in bringing these characters to life, and so I was astounded. I mean, obviously we've got you know like Anna Taylor Joy, and we've got um, Jason Isaacs and Simon Pegg, Mark Hamill, uh, Taron Egerton. I mean. Bill Hader. Izzard, Bill Hader. I mean, the list is endless of the amount of people that the, the people that are in the show. I mean, you even have like Alicia Vivikander who's in there for like one episode, uh, you know, like people that you've seen in shows like, uh, you know, Game of Thrones and that kind of stuff you've seen in major motion pictures. But everybody, I think, just is here working towards bringing their character to life. And so when you think about it's not just the voice actors, but it's also the puppeteers working in concert together to really do this. It's astounding. And it's just, I don't think that there was anybody in the voice cast where I was like, Ooh, ooh, no, that no, everybody to me was on point. I will say though, it was a little bit of a drawback for me. Aquafina's character's voice. I think that it was just a little too, weird and silly um, compared to like the emperor's voice. 
I think that maybe she could have done it toned down a little bit. You didn't like her pustules and the, you know. No, I did not. All the snot constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's funny because that actually brings kind of a segue to my only critique. And it's, it's a minor one and it's a nitpicky one, especially from an editor standpoint. Um, there's a few things. And that was actually one of the ones that I noticed, Christy, which is funny that when you mentioned that it kind of brought it, brought it back to mind. I feel like from an editorial standpoint, I feel like there are times when the show draws certain moments out a little too long. And, um, and in my opinion, it draws that for no other reason, which doesn't make it a worse mistake or or a better or a lighter one. Then, I mean, again, from an, from, from an editor standpoint, from someone who's worked with TV, it really feels like someone said, okay, we got to hit the 10 episode mark. We got to have 45 minutes or whatever, you know? And so feel free add it a second. Uh, feel free to come back to this shot twice, three times, even if you want. And there are times when in some of the action sequences, it, it never gets for me to a point where it actually hurts the story, where it actually takes me out of it, where, you know, it's, it's, there's a few times where it skirts that. Um, and I noticed it in some of the action sequences where it, it broke down the action into a few too many cuts. I noticed it in there are moments like, for example, if someone says something in a group and there's six characters, typically you would have one or two, maybe three character reactions in a normal cut. And then you move on. But if a person says something and there's five other characters in the room, they show the reaction of each one of the other five characters. And I noticed it in some of the things, like, for example, even when they go to gag moments, like the, the, the pustules, they draw those out way out. And, like, you could say it's for the gross out factor, but it felt like at times they were just kind of like, okay, yeah, she's, she did some really cool, some really cool efforts while she was recording. And, you know, you only need to grab... 38 frames or uh, you know two seconds of that but they were like i'll just let it run we can we can animate the puppet to the full five seconds or the full seven seconds and it feels like again it's it's a very in the grand scheme of things it's a very minor critique but i would have i would have said hey you know what make it a little tighter maybe you'll end up with nine maybe you'll end up with eight episodes doesn't matter because you'll have eight episodes that'll be a 10 and a half instead of 10 episodes that are at an eight and a half or a nine. But you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny that like <laughs> just thinking about that reminded me of, of the, 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 cause I was conscious of it, like specifically with that watching. And I was like, man, they're sticking on that gag of like the pustules, just they keep coming back to it. And they're like, they're like really just being very generous with it a little too, too much in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, So I will piggyback off of that. And I'm sure, like you were saying, Nick, that you, you more than any, any of us would have noticed them drawing things out because you work in editing. (laughs) Um, But I, but I agree. It did kind of feel that it was drawn out 
um, it for me in particular, the, my minor critique was was the gross out factor more than anything. Um, and I mean, like you said, it's a small thing. The rest of it, I loved, um, but I felt like it was just too far as far as it goes with the the snot and pustules, and then um, in particular with like the peeper beetle, or even worse, having the one Skeksis peeing outside. I just was like, it, come on, that just wasn't necessary. It doesn't do anything for the story. It's just disgusting for disgusting sake. And I, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, there were some, I, and I, I'm glad you brought it up because I did feel like there were some episodes where things were drawn out too much. I would say specifically when they went to the temple in the desert, all of the scenes where we're telling the where before we're going to tell the story, like everything is just, it's like we're just padding for time in this episode when we don't need to. Um, again, this is Netflix. We don't have to make any episode longer than it needs to be. This is what the Mandalorian is getting right 100% mm-hmm. of the time, which is the episode is exactly as long as it needs to be. It's not a second longer. We don't need it to be longer just to make it longer. And, you know, there were scenes like when the the Skeksis were getting ready for battle and they're all just kind of like yelling, ah, and like we have to see every single one of them yell. That's like a minute of yelling. I'm I don't need a minute of yelling on screen. You know, so, yeah, I would totally agree. There are a few moments where I think obviously it would be difficult when you're working so hard to bring this to screen. It's kind of like when you're making an animated movie and you know, you're putting all that together, it's really difficult to start cutting out scenes because you've worked so hard on these scenes um, because that's the very essence of the movie. And with puppeteering, I'm sure that that's similar. Um, But I do think you could have, like, trimmed here and there, even if it was just trimming certain episodes. And, yeah, they might have only been 40 minutes long, but why is that a bad thing? You know, and, and I think, again... We're starting to see how uh, these streaming services figure out you're not bound by time, you know. You you don't have to do that, you know. Um, and so I I'm I'm really glad that that's happening. Um, Nick, you mentioned the music and uh, Daniel Pemberton, uh, who did one of my favorite soundtracks, the Man from Uncle soundtrack, which is fantastic. Uh, him and Samuel Sim bring the music to life in this show, and I think like all great uh, fantasy worlds, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, he really did a great job of, of making this this universe feel like it had its own sound. And it didn't just feel like other fantasy stuff we've heard before. Like it felt like its own thing. And I really, I've, I'm like you, I've loved listening to the soundtracks. I think they're beautiful. Um, and, you know, he worked with that dark crystal sound so i i love it i really love it yeah i think he was able to um he uh uses the original theme a few times but uh i really think he was able to expand tremendously on the style of the original score and the theme and he st- he stayed true to it without it didn't feel like it was repetitive or exploitative i mean and i 
I love, I told you guys how much the nostalgia affection that I have for the movie itself and for when it came out. Um, but, and I, I, I have the soundtrack for the original film and I, 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 I like it a lot. I love it dearly because it was with me through my childhood. But this, this I think is really expounded and, and, uh, much more sophisticated, um, much deeper. And, uh, I'm not surprised, you know, he also did, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, another soundtrack uh which really shows his talent uh i think he also did the soundtrack for uh spider-verse you're right yep you're absolutely mm-hmm. right and uh and that's another one that's that's dead on um with what that's that story is and and at the same time completely different stylistically from what he did for dark crystal which shows that it's not just a happy coincidence of, well, you know, this is the kind of music this guy does and it fits well with what the story calls. This is a guy who at least these three times had a really strong grasp of what the story thematically, flavor-wise, musically really called for and was able to deliver something which, while completely different from what he had done before that, was just as as tight and, and served um, the story, informed it and, and enhanced it. Yeah, I I really couldn't agree more. I was really impressed when he worked on Into the Spider-Verse and the fact that he could go from doing something like that to going like this really does show that he can get into whatever he's working on specifically and tell that individual story and isn't, like you said, Nick, like a, a guy that does one particular style and always does that same style. I like that he can really get immersed in the world that he's working on now yeah i mean a music scoring is for film is about it's 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 a very it's a very tough language because it's about figuring out what the moment is emotionally and helping to enhance that helping to communicate that better more strongly to the viewer Without actually being so strong that you over deliver and you make it too much on the nose. And, and so that's, that's the difficulty is it has to be, it's, it has to be something very technical to it at the same time as obviously you're still creating music and you want to create art. And so you want to kind of be free within the melody, but you have to write to really kind of find the sweet spot in every moment and every scene and every shot that really enhances clarifies informs without going too far and um to be able to do that not only within one style i mean you see a lot like the great composers you know like john williams and james horner and alan silvestri but they they you know they have a very defined methodology and genre within which they operate and there's very few that are able to kind of turn that around and, and capture it just as well within a completely different set of boundaries. And Spider-Verse and Dark Crystal are certainly examples of, of very different um, universes like that. And, and he delivers just as, as on point um, a language musically. But to pick up on what Matt was saying, you know, Man from Uncle is yet a completely different beast. I mean, it's a live action film. There's the comedic nature, there's the jazzy sort of like 60s, tense, suspense, spy, but at the same time, the caper tone of like we're having fun. And all these things are, you know, are like really important to convey to the viewer so that the, the, the movie delivers its story successfully. 
and and it's just it's flawless each time. With all of these things said, I am really interested to see what the ratings for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance are going to be from you guys. Nick, ahead, do you want to go first? No, you go okay. ahead. <laughs> Open fire. <laughs> the um, Dark Crystal newbie will come in with my rating on the prequel. Uh, so I really, after everything said, I think that it's a beautiful, both visually and emotionally story. Um, and I'm glad that I started with the show and now I can go into the movie and see how they compare from that perspective um, and give you guys a really good heads up for next week. Um, but I really, I enjoyed the way that the puppets did not really look like puppets. I think that they were beautifully made. I think that the faces especially were so smooth on all of the Gelfling that you really can't tell that they're puppets except for um I was saying you can only tell they're puppets when they're running because they do that, you know, like Sesame Street bounce from place to place. Um but otherwise I think that you would think you're watching something like Avatar and that the world building is that good and the puppets are built that well. Um I love the music. Um, and I, I especially love that it had these timeless storytelling pieces to it. And I'm already a fantasy fan since I was little anyway. So I, I was going to be bound to love this. So I give it a 4.5 out of 5 um, bits of bioluminescent moss. Nice. What about you, Nick? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a fantastic w- world. Um and they played in a sandbox, which they didn't create. But honestly, they did so much with it that I, I you know, I, I want to give them full original credit. I mean, I think that the original film uses like primary colors um, to paint um, a very simple, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, um, tale, fairy tale. Um, like a children's book fairy tale. And this actually really elevates everything. And, and so um, I, you know, I think that that's fantastic. Um, I was, I was really, uh, and I'm glad that I didn't know going in. And I only found out like I was almost, I think I was on episode eight or nine when in the end credits, I saw Louis Letelier's name. And, and at first I thought that he maybe had just directed that episode and and he's a, um, I I met him, um, a few times, had lunch with him at the ranch, um, when he was, uh, in post-production and we talked about other, other stories at the time. This was like in 20, 2013, I think. So six years ago. Um, and I knew from, from talking with him that he had a lot of passion for animation, uh, even though he's a live action director. Um, it's really, really cool, really cool, um, dude. And, um, finding out, I had no idea. He, he had mentioned other ideas of the franchises that he was interested in, in, in bringing up the screen and never mentioned dark crystal and seeing that he was the guy who then realizing that he hadn't just directed that episode, but that was, that was his baby, um, made it, um, I was really, really happy to see that he had been able to devote himself to something and, and bring it to life so well. Um, so I, you know, I would give it, 
I'd, I'd scale it on a scale of one to 10 and I'd give it a nine, nine out of 10. Yeah. I, this is, um, this is just something that I really enjoyed. Like, and I've seen it twice now cause I watched it when it first came out and I watched it again before uh, we were going to talk about it here and it's beautifully done. It's, it's beautifully created and it, it's telling a story to which led us to spend most of our time talking about thematic elements that just flowed through this. And I think, to me, that's when something's truly successful, when it's making me think about the most important things in life, right? You know, when we're talking about truth and, and unity and, and the selfish life versus the, the selfless life, all of that's amazing, you know. And so I'm I'm right there with you guys that, you know, I'm going to go four and a half out of five um, snotty noses because uh, <laughs> it's... It just is great, um, and it's it's as close to I think perfect as I've seen something play out. Maybe um, you know when when it comes to like a television show like this, and and a huge risk. I mean, obviously, you know, doing this huge risk when it comes to the amount of time and money you're spending putting this together. So I'm, I'm really impressed with it all, and um, so. New year, but and a newer segment, but we're going to talk about some recommendations. And uh, Christy, uh, new year, what would you like to recommend to everybody this week? So uh, I just started it, and uh, I know eventually we're possibly going to talk about it on the show, but I'm going to recommend The Witcher because I, I really didn't know what to think at first, but um, I've watched one and a half episodes of it so far, and it kind of has the similar feel to this show with the mythic part and it dealing with some really deep emotional archetypes that people have to go through. Um, and Henry Cavill, I mean, you and I both think he's awesome already, Matt, so... <laughs> He he is the Witcher. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, it's okay. He's in the marketing. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's got that, that medieval feel to it. And uh, it's about mystical creatures and good and evil and that there's shades in between. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. Uh, my wife and I are hoping to watch that. And yes, we are planning to cover that for the show. So um, definitely something that's a smart recommend. Um, Nick, <laughs> over the holidays, was there anything that uh, you were able to, to watch or read that you would like to recommend to the listeners? Legion. Watch Legion. Um, I am uh, halfway through the third and final season. I cannot even tell you how impressive, how intelligent, how beautiful, well-written, well-acted, well-directed, well-composed, everything in Legion is. It, it is. it is by far the best, I don't, almost don't even want to call it series, but it is the, the best, um, series that I've seen um, in a long, long time, quite possibly edging itself to become my favorite all-time television series as, as a piece of art. 
I would say, even though, you know, my, I'm, I'm a Star Trek fan and Star Trek is my thing, but I've always said that in my opinion and my quote unquote objective opinion, Twilight Zone was probably the best series ever. I think Legion might actually edge it out. Um, it, it, it's just unbelievable. The, this is like, this is the work of someone who is in complete control of their craft and who has a, a complete understanding of the craft of storytelling at every, every turn, writing, art. Um, every shot is a work of art, a painting that you can watch just on a purely abstract level, or you can fit it into the story. Every piece of music, every, every line of dialogue. Um, it's, it's, I, I like to describe it by saying, this is what Kubrick would do if he was alive and doing TV. Um, it's like the 2001 of, of TV series. And, and so I can't, I cannot say enough good things. Um, I recommend everyone watch Legion and learn whether you, you want to learn, you know, how to appreciate film and storytelling just from a um, passive standpoint as a fan, or if you have ambitions to be uh, a storyteller at any level, whatever your craft is, watch that because this is current this is being done now it's contemporary and it's by all accounts commercial you know it's something that's on cable tv and that sells itself as a tv show but it's also completely 500 percent art well i know um i had a feeling you might recommend that because uh behind the scenes uh with john mills and i you have been talking about that show for i think at least two years now only a little bit so, only a little bit <laughs> yeah only a little bit only a little bit um but no that's really cool and i'm i'm excited to be able to check it out um you know i know it's ending but to be able to go back and watch the whole thing now um, because it's just one of those with the massive amount of series that we're getting these days it's hard to keep up with everything. <laughs> so, um, but the fact that it has the three seasons and I'll be able to check it out. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I'm going to go with, um, over the holidays, uh, the wife and I went and saw uh, little women and, uh, yeah. it was excellent. Um, it was legitimately one of the best movies of 2019. Um, it is so worth uh, anyone checking out, male or female. Do not be scared by the title, men. It's it's a perfect movie uh, for, um, well, if, if, if you got a date, it's the perfect way to show how sensitive you are uh, and, and take your date on, on a date to Little Women. But honestly, um, I would have seen it uh, even if uh, my wife didn't want to because um, Greta Gerwig is fantastic. She did... Um, uh, Lady Bird, which was amazing. Uh, the casting in the movie is is, is phenomenal, uh, and just the movie in general. I, I was blown away by the way that they told the story, the way they did the story. So, yeah, hundred uh, percent loved it, and highly recommend it to everyone. Um, but uh, Nick, it, obviously, great to have you back here on the Six Hundred Two Club, and and we'll be excited that you're back next week to talk about uh, the original Dark Crystal, the movie. Um, but in the meantime, where can everybody find you if they want to catch up with you? I will bring my uh, my Dumas special cocktail next week. <laughs> I'll have it with oh, me. Oh, good, good, because I'm wanting to try that. Mm -hmm. uh, don't even tell us what's in it. Just, just surprise <laughs> It's probably us. better if I don't. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the meantime, uh, yeah, if people want to uh, track me down, Facebook is the best way. 
Um, I, uh, I'm not, I don't, um, post very much at all, but I am on Facebook. So uh, I read, I'm a, I'm a Facebook lurker <laughs> and, uh, um, that's about the extent of my social, social media presence. So it's the, the best, the best way to find me if you, uh, if you want to send me a message or, or anything like that. Sounds good. I think maybe I added you on Facebook. You did. <laughs> we are oh, friends. Good. Okay. We are friends 21st century style. Yay. Ooh, it's Facebook official. That's right. <laughs> By the way, I forgot to mention another thing I loved from the show was when uh, they said the most sacred of all arts, puppeteering. Yay. Mm-hmm. I know. That was awesome. <laughs> it was cute. Yeah. It was, it was self-serving in the best and most tasteful way. Yes, Absolutely. And uh, if you want to talk with me, I'm in the Babel Conference. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And in addition to the 602 Club, I co-host a couple of other podcasts. I'm on a show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. Uh, then I'm also doing a show once a month on the Fanthatrax Network called Planet Leia, where myself and five other women from around the world talk about Star Wars. And then lastly, I do a segment once a month called Fashion in Five on the Star Wars Report, where I review men's and women's Star Wars fashion. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. You can find me here on the network when Chris Jones and I get a chance. We talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on The Orb. Uh, You can also find me doing two shows over on the Nerd Party Network. One is called Owl Post with Dre Kaufman as we're walking one chapter at a time through uh, the Harry Potter series. I'm doing Grest Negotiations with John Mills, where every once in a while you can hear Nick as well, uh, as he stops by sometimes to talk about things. Uh, but John Mills and I, every week, are talking about Star Wars, and, well, with the plethora of Star Wars material that has been coming out and what's coming up with uh, the Clone Wars returning there in February, well, we'll have no lack of things to continue to talk about for years to come so join us over there and then you can find me over on cinema stories with my good friend courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear <laughs> <laughs>